This is The Guardian. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Victory for Manchester United over Liverpool in the Premier League. So many questions. They were good, but are they actually good? How brave was Eric Ten Hag with his selections? Does it help if your front three can all press? Can you actually be a short centre-back after all? And how many other people googled Tyrell Malassia halfway through the first half? And what of Liverpool? Three games, no wins, missing so many players. Who do they miss the most? Should James Milner start thinking about joining the Vets? Is Van Dijk on the beach? Has anyone ever asked if Trent Alexander Arnold is susceptible at the back. Also today, Nick Ames joins us from Ukraine, where he's been doing some absolutely vital and brilliant reporting. We salute Ellen White, who bounds out at the top, and try and work out why it appears half our audience are concert violinists. All that plus your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendening, welcome. Hi, Max. Hello, Jonathan Wilson. Morning. Hey, Dan. Very good, thank you. And uh, apologies, Salon Andy Hickman, for, for booking you. Well, we didn't know. I mean, I sort of presumed we'd be booking you after Liverpool and Hab and Manchester United 4-0, but that didn't happen. It didn't happen, but I'm still glad to be here. Okay, that's great. Paul says, Max, is everyone in crisis? Barry, you called it, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, not with any great confidence. I just thought that in all the clamour over how bad Manchester United have been in their opening two games of the season. It kind of the fact that Liverpool have been pretty terrible as well got lost, got drowned out. And I thought that um with them being away from home, we we know what the old Trafford crowd can do if they get behind the team on a good day or a good night. And the fact that they've quite an in bad injury crisis and have have looked fatigued and tired in their opening two games I, I give them a decent chance of winning um the bookies gave Manchester United very little chance of winning and and uh yeah so I, I had a little investment so did you go into this game with confidence on how did how were Liverpool fans generally approaching this game I didn't actually and I think that's easier to say now with with hindsight but I genuinely felt like this was the most nervous I'd been for a United Liverpool fixture for for a long time I think I think there was a sense that like Barry said we weren't talking enough about how poor we've been in the last two fixtures and an occasion like that is also the the, the kind of if you're if you're a struggling team 
you feel like the whole world's against you, nothing's really going right for you. And then you suddenly get the fixture of, well, actually, there's absolutely nothing to lose here. We're playing at home. We've got a boost with a new signing. We've got something to prove here. I think like that's the probably most, yeah, it's probably some of the best situations that you could go into that game to really, to really give it a go and beat Liverpool. Matt says, has a 45 minutes ever vindicated anyone as much as that first half has vindicated Jonathan Wilson? I mean, I don't know if I ever mentioned it, but I did have this sort of, this thought at the back of my mind oh God. that maybe, maybe the problem might be Ronaldo. And, you know, I mean, the, 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 you got to think, like a year ago, so Ronaldo arrived at the end of August. His, his first game was, I think it was the first game of September against Newcastle. That team that he came into, I mean, they hadn't started the season particularly well. They'd had a, a couple of scruffy games against Southampton and Wolves. But they had finished second the previous year. And the thing that they'd been really good at was, particularly against good teams, teams that left space behind them, they were really mobile and fluid up front and they were very good on the counter. And Ronaldo's arrival completely new to that. Now, I had all kinds of other issues with Solskjaer, but they were good at that. And Ronaldo, quite apart from what his his sort of, just the, the enormous mass, the gravity of a celebrity does, it stopped them doing that. Well, suddenly they were back doing it. And you saw how confident Rashford looked. You saw how good Alanga looked. Um, Sancho's confidence, particularly in, in taking the first goal, they looked totally transformed. Ronaldo has always been the issue. I have been telling people. <laughs> I probably look, the, the selectors beyond that were brave as well, weren't they? Dropping Maguire, dropping Shaw, you know, playing Martinez, despite the fact that, you know, he's one foot six, bringing in Malassia, who I confess I didn't know a whole lot about and I thought was absolutely brilliant at left back, especially up against Salah. Yeah, I mean, Shaw and Maguire have been so disappointing recently. I, I, I don't know when Brave just becomes, what else can you do? Um, and I think when you've... Uh, had he not picked Martinez, what would that have said? You've gone out and spent however much money bringing in a player that Ten Hag wanted, you know, a player Ten Hag knows, that's a Ten Hag signing. He'd take them off at half-time last week. If he'd bombed them out for this game as well, you sort of say, well, there's... What, whatever was it? Was it 35 million, 40 million he cost? Just wasted. We just don't need him. So I, I, I brave in some ways, but also absolutely the obvious right thing to do. Barry, I feel like I addressed that question to you in the first place, but I mean, Wilson answered it very well. I wondered what your thoughts were. Well, I, I thought you did, but there was no answer. So I thought <laughs> I'll, I'll just... You feel the space. What what I'll do is I'll cover behind. <laughs> really yeah. good. So basically, what Wilson's done there is exactly what Jordan Henderson wasn't doing last <laughs> night, which is why Fabino should have played. So Jordan Henderson could have played in the usual right side midfield role and then covered those big spaces in behind Trent Alexander that David Gea kept punting the ball towards. Um, I'm, I apologise, Max. I thought you addressed it to Wilson, hence hence my silence. Oh. But I think I've wriggled myself out of that awkward situation quite well. On, on that first goal, and Sancho did take it absolutely brilliantly, and there's something about the composure of a player when most of us would have just tried to shoot. And, you know, that sort of shows his brilliance. But Dave says, is Van Dyke's coolness sometimes too much? Admittedly, Milner and Allison were both sent for hot dogs by Sancho's fake shot, but Van Dijk appeared to just stand there with his arms behind his back like a school kid awkwardly waiting for his class photo. Should he not try and close? What, what, what were you yelling, Salon, at that moment? Engage. <laughs> Engage. Do something. I think, yeah, you can see why Milner gets so frustrated there because Van Dijk's positioning is basically, he's kind of in a no-man's land. He's sort of, 
he's not quite far to his right enough to be blocking um, that area of, of the goal. And he's kind of just standing slightly in front of Alisson. He doesn't step towards him. He doesn't slide to make a block just after exactly what Milner's done. And I understand it. I, like, I get the whole stay on your feet, arms around your back, just and, and make your body as big as possible. But it, it felt like such a long time that he could have done something differently to what he was doing for the first few seconds. So I understand the frustration for sure. And I think, yeah, it was quite funny to see the Twitter reaction of, of everything that, you know, everyone wanted him to do in that moment. Uh, just as a side note, with regard to the increasingly absurd handball rule, is there any position a central defender can stand in where it makes their arms look in a more unnatural position <laughs> and, you know, behind their back, like, as as our correspondent said, a schoolboy posing for a photo? Or like meeting the Queen at the Royal Variety show, you know, <laughs> just, just after Cannon and Ball. This is Virgil van Dijk. Hello, Your Majesty. Uh, Pete says, which Manchester United player do you think was the one shouting, lads, they're fighting amongst themselves when Milner and van Dijk were arguing throughout the game? My money would be on um, McTominay. I mean, but but is that just a, is that an aberration from Van Dyke? I mean, in a way, I guess he might think De Gea's not dived yet. So if I'm big, then De Gea can dive. He didn't know that De Gea was on the floor and Bruno Fernandes was just pointing at the corner of the goal going, put it in there, mate. Well, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm hesitant to criticise Van Dyke because he's been the best defender in the league for three years. But I don't know, I just don't know what he was doing because, it, you know, as Salon said, the only thing he's doing is blocking De Gea's eyeline. Uh, hang on, no. Alison's eyeline. Yes, I said I, yeah, De Gea. I sorry, <laughs> sorry. I just I presumed yeah. De Gea had conceded the goal because that, that's what the narrative is telling. <laughs> so yeah, he's blocking the, the whichever goalkeeper it was, one of the goalkeepers, <laughs> blocking the keeper's eyeline, and potentially playing somebody onside if there's a if there's a rebound. So I I, I totally get Milner's frustration that, that Van Dijk has surely has to go out to engage, but also I think Van Dijk sort of got away without quite a lot of criticism uh, last Monday for, for not closing down Zaha. And to an extent, it's a brilliant finish from Zaha. And, and maybe maybe he was right that the, the percentage thing to do was to sort of slightly delay his run you know, just in case Zaha checked inside. He, 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 it, it sort of makes some kind of sense to think Zaha's not going to score from there. And if I go charging in, he can just turn inside me and then he's got all the time in the world to shoot. But those two things coming back to back, both sort of this odd diffidence. I thought more generally last night Van Dyke was poor. He, he just didn't seem as aggressive as he normally is, as assertive as he normally is. I thought his use of the ball was poor. Now, maybe that's people in front of him you know, doing things differently and so that changes his role. I think that's as bad a performance as I've seen from Van Dyke since he was trying to play his way out of Southampton. Before we focus on Liverpool, just a question for you, Wilson, from Neil, saying that probably one for Wilson. Was there any evidence there of a clear tactical plan from United? Clearly they played better, but was it just derby game vibes that made the difference or was there something ten-hargy about that performance that I couldn't pick out? Well, and I think those are two slightly different questions. I, th- I think the tactic was not to be ten-hargy. Um, so, you know, the, and, and this is why I'd be slightly cautious about saying everything's suddenly fine at United that Ten Hag's football is playing the ball out from the back. Well, they just didn't do that. And I think in the short term, that's the right thing to do, that De Gea can't really do it. Loads of players in that team, their confidence is shot. You don't want to be putting them under pressure, particularly against a team who presses as well as Liverpool, 20, 25 yards from, from their own goal. So every single goal kick De Gea took long. Every clearance went long. 
well, that's not Ten Hag football. So immediately there's a dislocation there. And at some point, you need that thing to be resolved. It either stops being Ten Hag or it stops being De Gea. And, and they do begin to play it out. So yeah, that's the obvious shift. But I, I think that front three, uh, the way they interchanged, the way that... Um, Bruno Fernandes was was able to to sort of knit the, the three in front of him together. I think that was all very very impressive, very very encouraging for the future. And there was also clearly a targeting of of the uh, Liverpool right flank. They were trying to get a langer against Trent Alexander Arnold, and I thought he did that brilliantly well. And I was very surprised that he was taken off at half time, but clearly Ten Hag had seen something. And then Martial plays a role in the second goal, so you, you know he he got that right. Whatever the thing that was that he saw. He was right to see it. Liverpool missing a lot of players, Silon. Um, James Miller did look very old. Even even when he did things well, there was one moment because when he sort of broke down the right and still managed to get a cross in or something, but he did it looking like an old person, <laughs> does it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that midfield three looked... I mean, when you saw it on the team sheet beforehand, you didn't, didn't feel too optimistic that that was going to be a midfield three that were going to go and get a, a result. But I think to just focus on the midfield... It probably isn't fair. I think you've got a back four there who should be one of the best back fours in the league. You've got a front three who, yes, are seasoned, aged, but they also, you know, well, apart from Luis Diaz, but Firmino, Salah in there, you would expect more from them. And I don't think there was a coherent performance across the pitch. We, we literally couldn't play through the thirds. We, we It didn't look like we could play past the thirds. It didn't look like we could play like within our own thirds. Our passing details were were terrible. We were like playing balls into players who were, had two players on their back when United were pressing us. And and then when we did lose the ball, there wasn't a, there was, doesn't really seem to be an intent to recover, to win it back. And I think there's, it's interesting, isn't it? When, when a team performs well, I think when you, there's such a confidence in talking about it. When Liverpool at the top of their game, we can identify why all the different reasons make up why we are performing at, at the level that we are. When things go wrong, you're kind of, going off all you have is to go off the same information you get 90 minutes on a pitch and then whatever they decide to reveal to the media and we can talk about squad depth we can talk about injuries we can talk about intensity and what last season and the impact of that rolling over but that doesn't actually explain why the good players aren't performing necessarily it doesn't explain why Trent Alexander-Arnold isn't isn't playing isn't not overhitting passes isn't waiting balls how he can usually wait balls isn't doesn't describe how Andy Robertson isn't creating so for me, that points to something broader that is, is you know, really speculative for us. We can talk about mentality. What does that mean? How do you even know whether that's something that's affecting our performances? But there needs to be a bit of an inquest after these the first three games, I think. Hmm. I mean, dropping seven points already, and as we established yesterday, Barry, points getting points is good and not having points is not as good. Uh, is this a crisis? Is it a crisis for Liverpool? Um, it's not a crisis, but I, on the evidence of what I've seen, I I think it could develop into one. Like my, not ludicrous, but you you before the season you asked us for um, outlandish, you know, outlandish predictions, and my outlandish prediction was that Liverpool would finish outside the top four, and it's looking increasingly less outlandish with each game that passes. But we're only three in. The, the, the odd thing is, I, mean, mm. I, I sort of remember the day after the Champions League final, being in a bar in Paris with a couple of other journalists, and we were sort of talking about how weirdly flat Liverpool had been in the second half of the Champions League final. 
and sort of saying, yeah, they really, really need Thiago. Without Thiago, there's, there's just something not right about that midfield. He, he's the person who brings the balance. And then, so even as we were sort of having that discussion, you're sort of correcting yourself saying, yeah, they've dropped six points in the second half of the league season. That was the only game and, you know, until last night. That was the only game Liverpool had lost you know, this calendar year. This year, yeah. yeah I, I think that's still the only game which they failed to score this calendar year. So you, you just talk a crisis seems absurd. And yet those issues that, that, that sort of felt so pressing in the second half of the Champions League final. Uh, and you always worry, the kind of, are you magnifying that because of the, the stage? Because you almost have to find more to write about because there's so, much, so many pages to, to fill when it's a Champions League final. And so do you kind of take one detail and blow it out of proportion? But I, I sort of feel maybe, maybe that first instinct was right. Maybe there is something off. And I, I can't quite work out how that can have happened so quickly between yeah, beating Wolves on the final day of the league season and the following weekend and the, the Champions League final. But it, it does just feel that... And, and maybe it's to do with the injuries, that they just don't have people to bring off a bench. And, and so when things aren't quite right, they don't have the, op- the, you know, they don't have the, the option of, 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 of improving or making changes. Maybe it's as simple as that. But at the minute, something does feel off. It's, it's just what is off, right? And how, how do we find out what is off? How much do they reveal to us of what is off? Um, how much do they know what is off, I think, is an is a important question. I think there'll be a lot of analysis into why individual performances last night weren't perhaps the most intense. I think the one thing you, think you can always rely on when you watch Liverpool previously was that we would you would watch a team that would want that ball and play with an intensity from the first minute that even if there were sloppy mistakes, even if there were passes that weren't completed, you'd still have that level of intensity, particularly in the United away at Old Trafford. And that just didn't seem to be the case. We were completely outplayed from an intensity point of view by Man United throughout the whole game. Joe says, when your sin bin rule comes in, Max, will Bruno Fernandes be sent into it for two years straight? Mark says, is there objectively an objectively more dislikable footballer in the Premier League at present than Bruno Fernandes? What an absolute weapon. Um, uh, I didn't, I've never really taken against Fernandes that much, Barry. I must admit, if you know, if I was a Liverpool fan, I'd be annoyed with him specifically when Salah was trying to get the ball out of the net and he was saying, no, no, I've got the kickoff. And then he went down holding his eye. It was just sort of annoying. But he's not that annoying. I, I can't think of anyone more annoying currently, but I don't know if you can. I did notice uh, Laws Lars saying on Twitter that he should have been got a second yellow and being sent off for for that incident where he wouldn't give Salah the ball. But it's Manchester United's kickoff, and he had the ball, so why should he give it to Mo Salah? Mm. Lars did delete that tweet, for, but it is still delaying the game, isn't it? I mean, that is, that's what... that's what. Well, no, it's, it's Salah's delaying the game, because Salah's the one causing the rumpus in the, in the, on the goal line or in the six-yard box. It's Bruno Fernandes' penalty. Like, if, if I'm about to take a penalty... Yeah. And a member of the opposition team comes over and tries to wrestle the ball out of my hands. I'm, I'm not in the wrong. Sure, but I? it's an unwritten rule of football. If you get one back and you need another, you have to get the ball quickly and run to the centre circle. David Platt in an Arsenal shirt is what springs to mind. Yes, there. chest out. <laughs> exactly. Um, so he's going against the spirit. Jonathan Pierce would be would be very <laughs> upset about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really care about that uh, minor issue, to be honest. I'd, I'd have it up there with uh, Eric Ten Hag dropping an F-bomb 
in his post-match interview, which seemed to get a lot of people very excited. I imagine on Dutch sports television, the F-bomb and the C-bomb and other bombs are dropped with impunity and no one really cares. I mean, what was good was he got it in the wrong order and obviously you know it's not his first language but they can fucking good play football is quite a good it's quite a good line isn't it we should always say it's obviously nice to see marcus rashford being good on a football pitch because it's it's been a long time and you know he's a good bloke and it'd be nice for him to play himself back into england contention well, n- nine nine months to the day since his last uh premier league goal uh, that was nine oh, hang months. on no uh, wow. yeah yeah January to August hang on January to August no seven months Christ, what is it's August the eighth month of the year J- January 22nd was yes. his previous uh, right. Premier League goal so yeah seven so months do we want to do wow. add simple simple adding yeah. what have we got seven, seven. we're happy with seven yeah. <laughs> fair enough uh, we should talk about the protests um, uh, there were lots of people there you know, not all of it was directed perhaps in the right way there was quite a funny bit where Fan protest stopped so the fans could run over to say hello to Casemiro, which sort of takes the edge of. <laughs> how, bit, how true bit. was that though? That wasn't that. How true was that? I feel sorry for some of you know hardcore United fan groups who like would never run over to Casemiro for that. And someone someone got their phone out at the absolute opportune moment there, didn't they? Sure, but I mean, I guess that's the nature of these things, right? There are people who. I would say rightly don't want the Glazers there and will protest whether Man United are top of the league or bottom of the league. There are some, you know, that protest would probably be, be was better supported because Manchester United had lost their first two games. And there are those that are just going because it's good to be in a crowd and yell some things, you know. And so it's quite hard within a protest, you know, to... to <laughs> I haven't been on many protests, but the ones I've been on, you know, like not everyone agrees on every part of it. What did you make of it, Barry? I saw you, you took to social media saying perhaps protesting on your way to a football match and then going to the football match is not the best thing to do. Well, it was a textbook football protest, um, pretty half-arsed and will almost certainly achieve nothing. Fans marched from the pub they were in to the match they were going to anyway um, en masse. And I think, you know, at one point the, the Sky, I think Sky were expecting more trouble than there was, but... Um, they they panned out to this march outside of the 1958 group organised and Dave Jones said oh fans they're marching towards Old Trafford protesting about the Glazers and I think the key word there is towards they were marching towards Old Trafford ideally in a protest like that you'd be marching away from Old Trafford not attending the game because the sight of thousands and thousands and thousands of empty seats is the only thing that might um rattle the Glazers. Now, I totally get that people have already paid for the season tickets, um, so they'd still get the money, but that's beside the point. If you're prepared to take the financial hit and miss the game and make that kind of visual statement where there's 40,000 empty seats, uh, you know, that would be a huge statement. But that's never going to happen. You know, Newcastle tried it. I think Liverpool have tried it in the past just doesn't work because you can't mobilize people and then various supporters groups start infighting and it's it it never works and then also you have and i hope this is the case because everyone knew there was going to be some manner of protest you get all these local hooligans turning up who aren't going to the game possibly don't even care about manchester united but still just they're they're there to cause trouble 
there was a coach full of kids, Manchester United supporting kids, got bottled <laughs> because uh, these yahoos thought it was the Liverpool team coach. Uh, there was some unpleasant singing about Hillsborough and Liverpool fans being murderers, um, uh, hopefully from a very small minority. And yeah, textbook football protest, well-intentioned, didn't really work. And I think the fact that Manchester United won the game didn't help. Mm, I, I mean, essentially, is there anything fans can, you know, there's boycott. nothing they could do. They can That's the only thing games. they could do. So yes. on your... What do you think? Yeah, I just think it's a really it's a really depressing and sort of miserable state to be in when you love something so much and it provides you such a sense of release, a huge part of your identity, the, the like grounding for your community and that regularity that you have in your week. And it is completely being ruined by people who just do not care. And the thing that they care about most is greed and profit. And the only option that you have to try and make a standpoint against that is to miss the thing that gives you so much meaning. And obviously that's, you know, strike tactics and uh, mobilization tactics, which are important to really think about and organize and coordinate. But at the end of it, there is going to be short-term loss for potentially for for individual fans who are working people for no promise of any long-term gain. Cause the we know what we know of the Glazers and are they going to care? Like most most Man United fans that I do know hate the Glazers and they go to games and they don't spend a penny in the ground. So there's still there's supposedly a financial impact there, but there's not really. Actually, I remember when we talked about the Blackpool um, uh, boycott, which which was quite powerful, but it did like it split families and it split friends up because some people said, "Look, this is you know this is the football that we want to go and watch, and we hate the owners." And it was a really difficult time, but I mean, I guess they they got what they wanted in the end didn't they? Um, uh, finally, the incredible revelation that Gary Neville has never had cramp. Um, obviously, a lot of Man United players got cramp late on. It's an incredible coincidence. I, I miss that. Gary Neville has never had cramp. It's what he said on Sky. Um, he, he said it on, on comms, yeah. Um, we are interviewing him this week because he's written a book. It'll be out in a couple of weeks. So our first question will be, how have you never had cramp? And the first time he gets it, go He'll really feel it, won't it? I'm halfway through his book. I've got crap. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that until we've chatted to him. Anyway, uh, that'll do for, <laughs> for part one. Part two, Nick Ames will join us uh, from Ukraine where he's been doing some brilliant reporting. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, let's um, catch up with Nick Ames, who is in Ukraine. He has been doing some brilliant reporting from over there. And I can see, Nick, it looks like a beautiful day and there is a stadium behind you. Where are you exactly? I'm in Kiev. Uh, I am at the Olympic Stadium, Olympic Ski uh, Stadium in Kiev, in the centre of town. Um, 
And a lot of you will remember this place for hosting the Euro 2012 final and then the Champions League final two or three years ago. Um, very different occasion today. As we know, it's uh, Shakhtar versus Metal East 1925 from Kharkiv. And they will be opening the new Ukrainian season uh, about two hours from now. How have you found it being over there, getting around? Do you, do you feel safe? How's it been? I feel safe. I mean, I mean, let's be real. I, I, I was woken up this morning at 7.10 by the, by the air raid siren. So, so that is a constant thing that is going on in, in the back of your mind and, and everyone's mind. Um, out and about on the streets, both here and in Klividik, which was a city I went to at the weekend that maybe we'll come to later, um, people are, are getting on, on with their lives. Shops are open. People are living it as best they can. Um, I mean, there's constant signs of defences and army. And I drove out a bit of Kiev um, yesterday and I've driven down to the, down to the centre of, of Ukraine as well. And, you know, you can see the roadblocks and checkpoints and defences and all of the kind of things that you've seen on TV, although maybe not on quite as high a scale as it was in sort of March, April, May. Um, and then there's curfews are very strict in the evening. Most of the bars and restaurants shut or stop serving at around eight or nine. And then here in Kiev, you ha have to be back home at 11 p.m. That means that there's a scramble for taxis inevitably. And in other parts of the country, where I was at the weekend, it was 10 p.m. So, you know, it kind of feels like normal life up to about 70%. And then there's this constant watchfulness that you have to have to always have. There is that saying, and I, I forget who, who said it, you know, that, that football doesn't matter, but for all the, of all the things that don't matter, it's the most important thing. And I, I get from your chat with the, the president of the Ukrainian FA, Andrei Pav Pavelko, I really sort of get that sense from him. And he sounds like a pretty inspirational guy. Yeah, he was he was a a character. It's fair to say. I I met him last Thursday, which was the day that I arrived at their FA offices. Um, I mean, he basically has been been a man on a mission for the last six months, and basically he 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 spent the first when football shut down in February. The the first thought was right: how do we get people out of the country and keep people safe? The wars started. Then it was pretty much right: how do we plan getting going again? And he was lucky he got he got agreement from all the clubs that were able to function, wanted to carry on. Um, had a meet well, two meetings with Zelensky, who was like, No, we we need to do this. It's a symbol of life, a symbol of hope, and something that means a lot means a lot to people. And Pavelko told me in this in today's paper today, I I, I think, um, that he he went all around the country and he visited a young boy, for example, in Zaporizhia, who'd come from Mariupol and was terribly, terribly wounded, had blood pressure that almost rendered him dead, was full of shrapnel wounds, couldn't walk. But the kid was obsessed with football and Alexander Zinchenko. And he put Zinchenko on the phone to him and the kid could like only move his head in the hospital bed. And the kid just, just started crying and couldn't believe it. And he told me that it was moments like that that persuaded him that through all of this absolute horror. But as I say, you see, see and hear the signs of around you, even if you're walking around having, having a coffee, um, things like that what persuaded him that football should continue in, in this very strange form that we're going to see today. And you know, they've had some some really practical questions about starting the season again. Should fans be in? What happens if there's an air raid siren? 
um, you know, will will games be abandoned? I mean, it's sort of fascinating. It's fascinating. Just it's hard enough administrationally to start a football season, right? But when there's a war happening at the same time, it, it sort of becomes almost ridiculous. Oh, completely. The number of um, of considerations and hurdles that, that they've had to get over is very long, and, and I think it's going to be an ongoing project. I think they're going to see how today goes, and then see if anything else needs to be put in place. For example, so when we go in there, I'm going to go, go into the stadium shortly after this we will all, all have to sign some documents saying that we will definitely go down to the air raid shelter if the siren goes off. If the siren does go off, you go down. And then I think within, I think I'm right in saying that within an hour of a game, you can just restart if it, go, if it stops within an hour. If not, then there has to be a discussion between the referee and a security representative and either they wait it out or the match gets, um, gets postponed or, or obviously abandoned. Nick, can I ask how are the clubs fixed for players? I mean, obviously Shakhtar are fabled for the number of Brazilians they usually have in their squad. I presume they're not there. And I've also read about Shakhtar getting rinsed for, you know, players basically being stolen from them by other clubs. Yeah, um, they've um, there's been quite a lot of controversy, especially here, um, about the fact that players have basically been able to move on to clubs at other countries or at least for the next year um, without clubs being able to recoup a transfer fee for them. Shakhtar particularly has uh, taken that to the courts and they've lost a lot of foreigners. Not too many foreigners have come back. I met I met one in Krivirica, uh, the club I visited at the weekend, Krivbas, so um, a Croatian guy who was just like, I wanted to get back straight away. I, I owed the club. They gave me a lot of support. I'm here again. But most of them have left. There's a, a trickle of comeback. I think there's an English lad, Viv Solomon Ottobor, in Lviv in the West, where things are touch wood very quiet indeed at the moment. Um, but yeah, a lot of these bigger clubs, as, especially Shakhtar, really, have lost a lot of players. It's not so much an issue for Dinamo Kiev, who had a very strong Ukrainian core, and one or two of the others, but there's definitely been a lot of squad turnover. A lot of clubs maybe losing 10 players and gaining a different 10 because players have moved or migrated around the country, obviously, in the last six months. So a lot of the squads look very, very different now. And so can I ask about European fixtures? They're presumably not playing Champions League games or Europa League games in Ukraine, are they? No, they've been playing in Poland. All, all of them are in Warsaw, are they? No, some of them, I think somebody was in, I, I forget who, were in Vudge. I think um, I think it was Luhansk or Poltava might have played their away game, um, their home game away in Sweden, but they lost anyway. Um, the Shakhtar will be in Warsaw. Shakhtar will be, yes. And um, one of the clubs played in, I think, Slovakia, Kosice, maybe. Uh, but there's no games are going to be played here in Europe. You mentioned FC Kyrbaz, uh, if I pronounced that correctly, which is, you went there and that is, what, 40 kilometres from the, the Russian front line. And they, they were kind of offered the opportunity or, or they could have relocated, but they, they wanted to make a stand and, and stay where they were. Absolutely resolute in that. Um, it was quite incredible to go and visit them, hear the spirit, and it's a, it's it's a very industrial. Well, I say very, it's an incredibly industrial area. This it's 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 worth seeing. It's um, it's the longest city in Europe, um, and it's all built snaking around these quarries and mines. I actually visited the quarry of the company that owns the club, and it is utterly mind blowing. Um, and um, there's there's a very strong working class patriotic heart here and the club decided to mirror it and 
stay put, whatever happened. And as and as you say, the front lines forty k away, they they shell just to the south of, um, of the city, so even nearer. Um, you weren't too far from the nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia that we've all read a lot about, I think, in recent days, and that was certainly quite tense on the particular day that I was there. Um, but no, they, they um, their stance was completely to um, train every day, and I think they might be able to play their first home game in a couple of weeks in Krivirik, which would be quite amazing. I think it would depend on the acquiescence of their opposition. Um, but yeah, they're absolutely not for moving unless they are forcibly moved. And their manager, the managers had a, an amazing story, right? He was managing Sheriff when they beat Real Madrid at the at the Bernabeu. Yeah, Yuri Bernidop, he, um, he was Sheriff's manager, as you rightly say. We probably all heard of him a bit last year because of that. Then he... Um, so Sheriff, when the war broke out, were playing in Braga in the Europa League and they lost, I think, 2-0. And he was still their manager. But the next day, he went back to, he, um, he went back to Ukraine. He went to Zaporizhia, signed up for the army, um, ended up in a, in, in a location that he didn't want to disclose, which is in, entirely understandable, as an artillerist, um, literally firing back at the Russians. He, he was literally doing that. Um, and he did that for the first few weeks or months of the war. And then... He, um, I think the Kyrgyz president was very involved in giving support to his artillery unit. And through that, he was transferred to, to Krivirik and allowed to manage again. Uh, so he joined Kyrgyz, which is, is a coup for them, to be honest, although they're quite a slick setup. And I, I think they will, in a sort of domestic context, surprise a few people. Um, join them and... Uh, I mean, his his stance perfectly aligns with theirs. He's he's a very patriotic Ukrainian. I mean, he's fought, fought for his country and left the Champions League football club. So say no more, really. Look, we've seen what you know Usyk winning that fight has meant. We've seen pictures in Ukraine or videos of you know soldiers watching that, and 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 when the Ukrainians played um, Scotland and, and and Wales in those playoffs, what it what it meant. Have you got a sense from people in Ukraine how sort of excited they are for football to be back? Yeah, I'm just about to meet somebody for a very quick coffee now before the game, actually. And um, I, I just spoke to him before I came on and he, he literally bounced up to me almost and was like, yeah, football's back. Look at this stadium and he's not even going to be in there. Um, and that's representative of, of the football fans I've met. I mean, there, there, I mean, there have, of course, been some ethical questions about this and people and people asking how important it is and what the priorities are. There's, and there's been bits of that in the media here, certainly before this week. But... Um, those questions tend to disappear pretty quickly. Certainly when you talk to people with, with an interest in football and certainly at government level as well, it's, it's, it's pretty unanimous the side they come down on. And a personal question, it's not all about you. You are sort of perhaps less self-indulgent than, I'll exclude Salon from this, most of the people I'm looking at on this Zoom call. But um, but like, <laughs> yes, Wilson. Um, but, you know, you, you went into football journalism, not probably not to go to war zones. I mean, I don't know if you did, but like, how like how have you found this experience? I know you've done lots of work from the UK about the Ukraine, but actually going there and doing this kind of work, how have you found it? Probably can't tell you till I get home, really. I mean, like you, 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 you just as you do with any story when you're reporting on a situation other people are facing, you you just want to make sure that any reporting that you do does right by the people who who you're reporting on, and that you're doing them justice and doing that justice, and that's what matters at the end of the day. I I can't say I've I can't say there's been any grand feeling, except obviously yesterday. Actually, I was I was in um, for a story probably for the 
front of a newspaper. I was in Bojanka and, and, and Bucha yesterday and I saw quite a lot of the devastation there and take, taking football journalism completely out of it. That was something that I'm going to need some time to think about, to be honest. Um, but in terms of doing the job, you, you just want to make sure that you're doing it well and doing it properly. Um, that definitely applies here. Mm. I'd say you are. I mean, you don't need a compliment from me, but I think the writing has been brilliant and it is fascinating and it's really good that you're doing it because it's so easy to kind of forget that that war is carrying on. And so it's important work you're doing. Thanks for coming on, Nick. Thanks a lot, Max. Speak soon. Nick Ames there out in Ukraine. Uh, and that'll do for part two. We'll be back in a second. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Gary Lineker will be joining Guardian Live for a hybrid event available online, worldwide and in person in London. Barry, you look surprised. You're not part of it. Don't worry. On Wednesday, the 12th of October, between 7 and 8 p.m., he'll be talking about his favourite football moments with the co-writer of his new book, Ivor Badil, 50 Times Football Changed the World. Attendees can ask Gary questions, buy a copy of the book. If you attend the in-person event, the book will be pre-signed. The event is family-friendly. Kids aged seven and over may attend. Get your tickets now at theguardian.com slash Gary Lineker. Are you okay with that, Barry? Yeah, sure. I, I, I oh. thought it was you were springing something on me that I was <laughs> un, un, unaware of. Yeah. Your attendance is not... It, it would be welcomed, Barry, but it is not necessary. Um, uh, Ellen White has announced her retirement from football. Uh, 33-year-old scored a record 52 goals for the Lionesses, helped them win Euro 2022, um, bowing out right at the top. Salon, how, how did you react when you saw that? It was a brilliant post that she wrote. She thanked everybody and and did it with great humility, I thought. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what everyone who's ever worked or played with her has always talked about, how just what a wonderful person she is and the brilliant member of any team that she's been in. She's played for so many... Yeah, women's teams at the, the peak of their game, she's won so much, um, but she's always had that humility and and that's been a, like a really beautiful part of her. She's such a likeable character in that Lionesses squad as well. And I think, yeah, a really good time to go for her personally. I'm obviously absolutely good that she didn't stick out one more game to get one more goal and equal Rooney's all-time record, right? But Harry Kane's only two behind her. So you kind of wanted her to to, to get that in the Euros or, or just do one more maybe against America on the uh, on the 7th of October. But, it you know, she's 33, she's married. Who knows what's next in her life? Yeah, re- really, really amazing thing that she's done for the women's game and a sad thing it also this is not the story but it does point a lot to um what's going on at man city they've had a number of significant departures um this season they just got knocked out of the uh women's champions league as well so they've probably got a lot of um work to be doing in the next in the next week or so to get some players in before the, the transfer window's over why is that i mean georgia stanway went to Bayern munich didn't she who else has gone and why has that happened do you think 
Lucy Bronze, she went. Jill Scott, she's gone to Villa at like the end of last season. Caroline Weir went to Real Madrid. She just scored and knocked them out of the Champions League uh, this week. Um, Kira Walsh, rumoured to want to go as well. Janine Becky's gone. Um, yeah, there's 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 needs to be an inquest, I think, into, into what's going on in City because it's supposed to be one of the dominant forces in the women's game and evidently it's not all things are going right there. Anyway, good luck to Ellen White and whatever you choose to do. Um, started at Chelsea in 2005, played for Leeds, Arsenal, Notts County and Birmingham before joining City in 2019. 113 appearances, as you say, one goal shy of Wayne Rooney's record. Uh, while we're on the women's game, enjoying your social media posts, Ceylon. Um, on to the next one, fire emoji. You know, they're, they're not quite footballery enough for me yet yeah. but they're close they are you know a, a picture of you sort of striding out from defence <laughs> all it needs is we go again after your first defeat we, there's, a, there's, a, there's a delicate line to tread I think between genuine feeling and Sunday League cliche and I think I'm veering into Sunday League cliche so please do hold me to, to account if I uh, if it gets too much but may, well, maybe you never know what's, if, if we get a win next week just say it's all about the team uh, be wonderful performance from the team I, I'll, I'll wheel them out over the next week absolutely yeah just to be clear Salon are you posting these yourself composing these yourself <laughs> or do you have a socials team behind you it is the media team who just yeah. say, say something like yeah, exactly it's the media team and i will i'll uh, i'll give them this feedback after this podcast uh, it's dully chamlet uh london and southeast regional women's premier forgive me where is that in the pyramid how good at football are you Zilon? we are step five so equivalent of league two is that probably yeah it's that four no, League Two is four. I know you're a Liverpool fan. You don't look that far down, do you? You're the you're the conference. Yeah, we are. Game. We are. Yeah, step five. So it's it's semi professional in the sense we don't get paid, but um, players in our league teams in our league do play, uh, pay their players. So um, yeah, we're we're vying for promotion this year. We've got it'll be a really competitive league. You've got Fulham in there. We've got Millwall, um, Worthing, decent side. We, we had Enfield Town and absolutely relegated into the league. So. Um, but we we really want to go up and we've got the resources to do it and the team is in a really good place. And I have to say, uh, you play your home games at Champion Hill and an afternoon at Champion Hill is rarely an afternoon wasted. Exactly. It's the perfect hangover cure. This is what I've been saying to the club in terms of marketing. If you go out on a Saturday night, Sunday afternoon, you have got 2pm kickoff. You're doing something good for the community. You're going to watch women play football. You're investing in your local club. You're sitting outside. You can get a greasy souvlaki and a cheap pint whilst you watch the game. So it is, if you do go out on a Saturday night and you want a little soft landing on a Sunday, do come down to Dulwich. Just after you've listened to an award-winning radio show well, while we're plugging things, eh, Baz? Um, <laughs> Newcastle have signed Jao Pedro um, from uh, Watford, uh, who are probably always going to lose all these uh, front players. Smile of Stars move to Villa has fallen through. Um, that seems like another sensible bit of business, Wilson, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he he probably gives them a slightly different option in attack. Um, that yeah, I, I think he's a little bit quicker than either Wood or, or Callum Wilson uh, can can sort of probably make runs from deeper. So yeah, I, I think yeah, it makes sense. Um, Chelsea, you sound incredibly bored by Jao Pedro to, to Newcastle Wilson. It's all right. You don't have to be excited, you know. Uh, I, 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 I thought in the circumstances it wasn't. No, a bad it was quite a good. No, no, no. I was no. I, was, I, I saw him score a goal last season, and I just can't can't remember who it was against. That's all right. 
Can't remember everything. It's not one of your better anecdotes. (laughs) 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 Well, the the next live show is going to be good, isn't it? Um, Chelsea are prepared to pay sixty million for Anthony Gordon. That's sort of including add-ons, right? So that's it's a bit like Morgan gives away twenty-five million, but with add-ons, I have Nottingham Forest win the World Cup. It'll be forty-two million. Then think, Barry. Do you remember when during the pandemic we were like transfer fees? We'll never see the like again. And now, sort of sixty. Was it Richard Jolly? Someone tweeted that Anthony Gordon has scored four goals and three of them have been deflected. That that is that. He's clearly a really brilliant young talent. Well, weirdly, I I heard, um, and I think I'm about to answer a question, a different question to the one you're about to ask. But I've I've heard Everton fans on uh, the radio on Talksport saying that they they quite happily get rid of Anthony Gordon and take the money, and I find that really strange because he's a local lad uh fan of the club fans usually like to see a, a homegrown talent do well and flourish for them and it, amid the shit show that was Everton season last in the last campaign i thought he was the one shining light hmm. but apparently they'd rather get this big fee not have him and given their recent history spunk the money they get for him on a load of players who aren't as good as him. So I, I don't understand it myself. I suppose if you have, even if you have like a young starlet who's one of your own fan of the club, who's very exciting, if quite close to them is the best footballer on earth, Salomon Rondon, you, po- <laughs> you possibly you possibly don't <laughs> see him, do you? So, you know. Yeah, you, you've woken me up with that. I, I've, now, I've now looked this up. Yes. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cap one of the greatest anecdotes of all time <laughs> okay. by revealing... He didn't actually score. He just played quite well. Okay. And it was wow. a, he, he came on at halftime on right. New Year's Day against Tottenham. Right. There we are. I mean, that's more than I know about Jan Pedro. But uh, good luck to you at Newcastle. Nick writes, good afternoon, Max, Barry and co. A long-time listener, first-time writer. I live and work in the United Arab Emirates. As a teacher, I've done so for the last eight years. So my chances of watching high-level football are few and far between. I've purchased tickets to the World Cup in Doha to see Croatia, Belgium and Portugal, South Korea. My plan was to drive to Qatar from Abu Dhabi, six hours. I've now been informed that foreign vehicles will be banned from entering Qatar. My only option is to fly. Uh, This needs to become public knowledge as this is a deliberate attempt to price out fans as flights are crazy expensive. I'm now going to sell my tickets and not bother attending. Please let the people know. Keep up the excellent pod. Thanks, Nick. This is from the official... Qatar 2022 website. Road access to Qatar is via the Abu Samra land border crossing with Saudi Arabia. Fans will be required to leave their vehicle at the border on the Saudi side and take a free shuttle bus for their onward journey into central Doha. Who doesn't love a shuttle bus? Uh, It'll be like Luton Airport Parkway for the whole World Cup, won't it? Um, Another reason to uh, uh, not go. Well, sorry, while we're on that, this may may well be going to change. But um, I, I was looking at this yesterday, and the Qatar is still demanding uh, that people have vaccine passports to to go. And to have a valid vaccine passport, you have to have had a vaccine within 12 months. Now, most people in the UK, unless they're over 50, that will have expired by the time of the World Cup. And, and even a lot of people over 50, they won't have got around to, to having it. And if you don't have that, you've got five days quarantine in a hotel, uh, and there aren't any hotels already. So I've got no idea what's going to happen with that. Presumably, they'll just waive the rule. But if they don't, then <laughs> literally nobody's going to be able to go. 
or just old people. It'd be like a saga holiday. <laughs> yes. Or you, you can, you, if you've had COVID and you can prove you've had it in right. the previous, I don't know how many months. Right, okay. So there's going to be people going around sort of like, you know. Licking lampposts. I don't know how you, what the best way of licking lampposts. Yeah, yeah. Are, are lampposts particularly contagious? I don't know, but I don't want to be licking a lamppost without good reason. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I love the idea of a blue rinse World Cup, though. This is every, <laughs> you know, just panned to the stadium and it's just lots of 80-year-olds, you, know, you know, wondering what they're doing there. Um, Mark says, where does Jonathan Wilson think the new Van der Volk fits in the pantheon of TV detectives? Well, you know what? Um, I've, I've, I've been giving this a lot, of court, a lot of thought recently. And I should say I'm only about three quarters of the way through the third episode. Uh, but I didn't like the first series of the remake. Uh, but I think the second series, I, either I was wrong about the first series, or the second series is a, is a whole new level. I, I think it's way better than Murder and Provence, where you can see how bored Roger Allen is. You know, it doesn't even, he might as well be reading it out for, for all the effort he's putting in. It's it's and, and I know you're a recent convert to McDonald and Dodds, but it, it's it's much better. Brilliant! I thought it was brilliant. Barry hated McDonald Dodds. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Ah, oh, it's. I mean, it's 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 outstandingly watchable, but it is not good. It, I, I think it's the best ITV detective drama for for a long time. There's, there's this series of Van der Volk. Um, I. A slightly different subject. Well, on the same subject, but I'm, I'm watching the last. Sorry, S- yeah. Salon looks so bored. <laughs> <laughs> have you not so got to an age? To Salon, have you not got to an age where you just watch TV detective shows on loop? Like all you're trying to do is find another good one. I overdid Shakespeare and Hathaway was just the best thing with a young baby, and now I'm on finished McDonald and Dodds, and I'm bereft. No, I just I've got it all to come. That and. Qatari World Cups when I'm 80. I look forward to it. <laughs> um, I should say, I am watching the last series of Better Call Saul, but since discovering that the main bad guy, Lalo Salamanca, looks exactly like Stephen Toast, it does make it harder to take him <laughs> seriously. Um, Paul says, while listening to Jonathan Wilson promote his new book, I googled it. Rather surprising to see that Wilson previously wrote another book about two brothers. Two Brothers is about two brothers that were ex-Navy SEALs. They were trained to kill using any weapon on their hands. Nick, the younger brother, sold his skills to the mafia. He becomes a murderer, highly sought out for special jobs. Tom becomes an FBI agent. Google Books, originally published 18th of May 2017. Author Jonathan Wilson. Sounds like you've written your first ever page turner, Wilson. I'm very impressed. Yeah, I, I feel that may be an Amazon glitch. They seem to have confused the FAI with the FBI. Right, I see. But, but I believe they are quite different institutions. <laughs> I think so. Did the FAI, was it John Delaney who uh, who did yeah. that botched job on mar lago and Donald Trump <laughs> being issued? Um, finally, a lovely message from Martin who says, Hi, Max, my brother is the first violinist in a professional string quartet and an avid listener of the pod. I never thought I'd be able to combine these two facts and make it topically relevant, but I should have known better. If his role is similar to yours in leading the group, I reckon Barry is like the viola player, always the butt of the jokes, but believing himself to be the superstar, brackets, and I think we all know he is. Anyway, my brother and I have spent the last few days saying farewell to our dad, who's been cared for in the amazing Arthur Rank Hospice in Cambridge. We'd be grateful if you could give a shout out to all the incredible staff there. The pod has provided us both with much good cheer in difficult times, as it has for so many others. Thank you, Martin. We wish you and your family all the best, of course, in in difficult circumstances. And thanks so much for getting in touch. And uh, we will add your brother to the increasing list of violinists who listen to this podcast. Um, And that'll do for today's pod. Uh, Thanks, Barry. 
Thanks, Max. Uh, thanks, Wilson. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you, Salon. Thanks, Max. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Max Sanders. This is The Guardian.